Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to pick up with the 13th verse. As you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and, the, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is truth. And so will you give us ears to hear your truth, not my interpretation or anyone else's, but to hear from your Holy Spirit We ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. Now, last week we talked about uh, assurance of salvation, and we focused completely on Uh, Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What we see following right on the heels of that is is John talking about another kind of confidence that believers should have and may have. And that is that uh, believers should have a confidence concerning prayer. So we read in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the word confidence there means a, a, a boldness that we can have. And so he's talked about He's talking to believers here, and uh, he's talked about how they can have an assurance in terms of uh, uh, their salvation. We can have that assurance. And then he goes on uh, to talk about here the, the benefit of being one of his children, of being a child of the living God. So in talking about uh, 
this confidence about prayer, he says this, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So how did John arrive at that confidence? Well, he didn't make it up. He arrived at that confidence because he heard the teaching of Jesus on that very subject. If we go back to the Gospel of John, let me just give you some examples. He says this. We, uh, again, if we ask, this is from where we just read, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. In John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 16, that chapter. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So, uh, Jesus often said to ask in my name. And I, I want to caution us immediately because Sometimes people think, well, that, there's the formula, there's the trick. If I, if I say, in Jesus' name, then, like a mantra, he's going to give me what I asked for. It's not a magical mantra. He doesn't have to answer, and that's not even really what he said. It's another way when we say in Jesus' name, when he said that, it's another way of asking according to his will. That's made clear uh, in all of those and uh, in 1 John as well. So here are the things that qualify our asking and guarantee our receiving. In verse 14, we read this, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So how can we ask according to his will? This isn't a matter of, of uh, a puzzle. We're not playing Jeopardy here, trying to, trying to somehow figure out this mystery and uh, coming up with, uh, well, I'll, maybe I'll ask it this way. Maybe that'll be according to his will. Then, then that promise will be fulfilled. Uh, that's, not, that's not it at all. 
But when we go to prayer, we want what we want, right? And that seems to be what it's saying here. So here's something for your consideration. Would you be better off today if God had answered all your prayers the way that you asked for them? Yes or no? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll answer for me. I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> you answered for me too, right? Yeah. I, I know I wouldn't. Because I don't always know what's best for me. I don't have the ability to see the big picture or really even understand what's best for me. Think about those of you that, that have raised children or are raising children. Um, my wife Connie and I felt like we usually knew what was better for them. We usually felt like we knew more than they did in terms of what was better for them. Now, sometimes that didn't make sense to them. Because we'd been around a little longer. We kind of knew the big picture better. We were a little more mature than our children. But God sees the picture perfectly. He is in control of everything, of all circumstances. And he always does what's best for his children. And he won't give us those things that hurt us. Now, it may hurt, but in the big picture of things, he won't give us things that will harm us. Here's how James Boyce put it. Prayer rightly considered is not a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires. Do you get it? It's, this isn't some uh, magical thing where we say, well, God's omnipotent, so I'll tell him what to do, and then I'll get what I want. He's saying that's, that's not what it is, but it's a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God. You see the difference? We might approach prayer thinking we're, we're going to change God's mind. And that's not what Jesus is teaching. It's not what John is teaching. So how do we know what God's will is for us? Well, the only way we can be sure is where he has revealed his will. And the place that he has clearly revealed his will is in the Word of God, in the Bible. We cannot confidently know God's will without reading, studying, meditating on the Bible. Remember, uh, John 15 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, and then he says, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there it is, the idea of abiding 
And that's through his word. And the most specific way, and you've heard a, a, a beautiful example of it this morning as Pastor Jason prayed, is to pray the scripture itself. When you don't know what to say, open the word. Go to the Psalms. Pray those prayers. That's where God has revealed himself. But you're not abiding in Jesus if you ignore or are ignorant of his word. And you won't be praying according to his will. At least you can't be sure of it. Now, we need to define because in this passage, it says we know that if he hears, what's the definition? What's, it, what's that mean? If he hears us in whatever we ask, uh, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Well, here's the point. When the Bible uh, speaks of God hearing us, it's in the sense that he answers us. Then the second part of verse 15, it's not just that God answers, but that because he answers uh, us, we have the items requested of him. That's the faith step right there. In the original language, the, the verb uh, have is in the present tense. So it's, it's not that we will have them, it's saying we possess them. Charles Spurgeon in his uh, address to his pastor's college about the power of prayer said this, might we not win more victories if we more constantly use this weapon of all prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in uh, supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all uh, be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. I would sooner, he says, see you eloquent with God than with men. Be sure that you're with God, and then you may be sure that God is with you. So he, he talks about this confidence in prayer, and then it seems like he's uh, transitioning to begin to talk about sin, but what he's doing is he's illustrating that there are, are prayers that God answers and others that we don't even need to ask about because we see his will. So in verse 16, he says, if anyone sees his brother... And, and this is telling us what our first reaction should be uh, when we see believers sin. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So he's talking about other believers. Uh, he, he uses the term brother here. Uh, for some, the first reaction when we see another believer sinning, uh, maybe to go to them. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's spoken of elsewhere by Jesus. 
But John is saying there's actually another first reaction. For some, a first reaction may be to judge that person. Or for some, a first reaction may be to gossip about it. He says, here's your first reaction, is to pray for them. If you see a brother sinning, none of those other reactions should be your immediate reaction. Go to the Father about them. That's where you start. And then we, we see that uh, something that may be a little shocking, a little surprising to some of us, and that is that for the unbeliever, there is a limit to God's forbearance. In the second part of verse 16, we don't often think of that. More often we talk about how it's never too late to be uh, forgiven. Uh, Look at the phrases that John uses here. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say uh, that one should pray for that. Now, he doesn't say you can't pray for it. He just says that's not something that that, uh, ultimately you have to do. So what are we talking about, about this sin that leads to death. John Stott says that uh, the sin unto death should be identified with Christ's discussion of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, where Jesus tells the Pharisees who accused him of casting out demons by being in league with the, the devil. And they were in danger of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The sin that has never forgiveness, neither in this world or the world to come. In other words, what he's saying is that, that it, it, don't, you mustn't, we mustn't ever attribute what God has done uh, to Satan. That's, God's not going to forgive that. But I think this may actually be referring to something even broader than that. I don't, I don't discount certainly what Stott says here. I'm convinced that John is talking about a continual, obstinate, persevering, and ultimate and final denial of Christ. Here's the thing. We, We should never label somebody as having committed that sin. Because we don't know. We don't know the end of anyone's story. So, so we shouldn't say that, that so-and-so, yeah, he's, he's committed the, the unpardonable sin. There have, uh, during my ministry, been those that have come to my office a number through the years that have been concerned about this. And sometimes the, the question comes up kind of like this, where they may say, uh, how do I know if I've committed the unpardonable sin? Or, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. My answer to them, if they come to my office and they ask me this or say that to me, My answer when they say, have I committed the unpardonable sin is, 
you haven't. Now, I don't know anyone's heart. But the reason I'm confident in saying that is what I say to them next. If you had committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't be worried about it. You wouldn't be here asking me about it. Your conscience would be so hardened, like Pharaoh or others we see in the scripture, that, that you wouldn't be seeking out a pastor and being concerned about, about your eternity. And then I, I follow up by, by saying, now I'm not saying you haven't sinned, because there's something that's brought them there, obviously, if they, if they ask me that. But then I can tell them the, the even better news. And, and that's what we see next here. That for the believer, there's not a limit on God's forgiveness. For the unbeliever, there is a limit to God's forbearance. For the believer, there is not a limit on God's forgiveness. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So John's point is that uh, while all sin should lead to death, it doesn't. Why not? Because our sin led to the death of Jesus on the cross to pay for it. Jesus died that death that we deserved. We should have died that death. And what he did on the cross was enough. And that's the best news of all. We cannot add to it, and there's no need to add to it, because it was enough. One of my favorite quotes is... uh, from a letter by Reverend Robert Murray McShane. He lived a long time ago. He's often quoted for this. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Now, some might think, if they just see that all by itself, that that's just You know, McShane was just telling us to turn a blind eye toward our own weakness. That's not what he meant. Here's the context. He said this in the letter. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners. Even the chief? Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel all his seeing uh, eye settled on you in love and repose in his mighty arms. And then he goes on to say, let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. 
Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart, and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Do you get it? What, what, he's, what he's saying is that we can dwell on our sin, on our lives, on our guilt. We can bask in that. We can feel bad. We can feel sorry for ourselves. Sorry that we've been caught. But the more we gaze on Christ, the more we will see how serious that sin is and it will be contrasted though with the beauty of Christ who is the remedy for that sin. Look at Christ. Your only hope in salvation. And that's why we come to the table. And that is to celebrate. To gaze on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He's not still sacrificing. He has completed his work. And here at this table, we are reminded, and by faith it is confirmed in our heart to strengthen us to be able not to gaze on ourselves, but to gaze on him. Let's bow together. So, Lord, will you help us to focus? Even, even as we come to this table and we grapple with sin that we might have even confessed a little while ago in this service, but it's still bothering us, it's still there. Will you confirm to us that what the Lord Jesus did? his body and his blood which are for us what he did was enough so that we can then commune with you as children of you the living God we pray in Jesus name Amen